Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join me in the ninth chapter of Hebrews. I want to return to our verse-by-verse study through this tremendous epistle, God willing, this morning. And we're in this section in Hebrews chapter 9 in which the Apostle Paul talks about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. And the writer makes his point here by emphasizing the contrast between the symbolic and the substantive, between the shadow and its reality. And I want to begin by reading in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read down through the 14th verse. As we speak this morning on the subject, cleansing the guilty conscience. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You may remember last time we looked at the first ten verses of this chapter in which the apostle deals with the symbolism of tabernacle worship, the Old Testament tabernacle that Moses and the children of Israel used in their worship of God in the Old Testament. And the thought that was developed in that passage was that the Old Testament tabernacle, with all of its parts and furniture and ceremonies, pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now that Christ has come, as verse 11 in our reading says this morning, but Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come. That is, the Old Testament anticipated better things. You know, the Old Testament was good, right? What we have is better. It's one of the key words in Hebrews. Now, the best is yet to come. (laughs) But let's not think that the old law was evil or sinful or false worship. There was nothing wrong about that worship. They worshiped the true God. It wasn't like Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or some other world religion. They worshiped the true God, but it was incomplete. And it pointed forward to good things to come. And that's where we are today. He says, Christ now has come. And now that Christ has come, his point is that the old The shadows and the symbolic has become obsolete. As the last verse of the 8th chapter said, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Obsolete again, not in terms of the fact that it was false worship, and not that the new covenant contradicts the old, but that it completes and fulfills it. That's the thought in the first 10 verses. Notice in verse 7 of chapter 9, He mentions a very interesting word for the first time. He mentions the word blood as he reminds us of the Day of Atonement. 
During the Old Testament worship service, every September, they would observe the Yom Kippur, as it's called in Yiddish, the Feast of the Day of Atonement. And it was on that day that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And that's the imagery now in verse 7 when he says, but into the second, uh, past that thick veil where the Ark of the Covenant was, the high priest alone, he says, went once every year. Not weekly on the Sabbath, but one time a year, and he only could go. But he went not without blood. And here is a reference that uh, is very important because the word blood will be repeated over and again now in the remainder of this chapter and into the 10th chapter. For instance, notice that he mentions blood in verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. Blood. Verse 13, if the blood of bulls and goats sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more? shall the blood of Christ. And when we speak of Christ's blood, we're speaking of the pouring out of his life by violent means. Now, of course, this is uncouth to many modern, sophisticated people. Perhaps you have even heard someone say, I wish we would stop talking about blood redemption. My beloved, if you take the blood out of the gospel, you've taken the good news out of the gospel. Because without the shedding of blood... There's no remission of sins, he will tell us in the 22nd verse of this ninth chapter of Hebrews. Blood redemption is the heart of the gospel. And what that means is God did not require sin to be atoned for by a contribution. A bill from your wallet, a coin from your pocket was not adequate to atone for sin. It took life being poured out violently. It took the shedding of blood and the reason that's true is because God is so holy and sin is so heinous. And therefore it took the ultimate sacrifice of a life. When Jesus died for you and me on the cross, he did not simply make a gesture toward our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, my beloved, gave everything he had. He laid down his life blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God prefigured all of this in the old covenant form of worship through animal sacrifices. Every day, the priests would shed blood in their various Levitical offerings. And then on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrificial animal into the most holy place and he would sprinkle it before the Shekinah glory of God on the mercy seat, first for his own sins, for he himself needed redemption and then for the sins of the people that he represented. And that was all symbolic of what would happen at the cross when Jesus shed his blood for you and me. So he mentions blood. And it is here in verse 7 when he mentions blood that our writer makes the further point that the old covenant is not only now obsolete, it's also inadequate to address your most fundamental spiritual need. What is your most fundamental spiritual need? The cleansing of the conscience. That's what you and I need more than anything else. Now, not only is the word blood mentioned over and again in this context, but the word conscience is mentioned. I read one verse, verse 14 of chapter 9, where he says, the blood of Christ will purge your conscience. But if you look back at verse 9, you see it again. Hebrews 9, 9. 
He says, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. And then if you move into the 10th chapter, I'll just hit these quickly. Verse 2, he speaks of the sacrificial system again. And he says, the worshipers once purged, that is, when the priest made the ceremonial offering on the Day of Atonement, that offering, if it did the trick, they would have had no more conscience of sin. But then he goes on to say, instead, the law brings sin to remembrance again every year. And then in the 22nd verse of Hebrews chapter 10, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So notice these references to the conscience, the conscience, the conscience. Together with this theme of blood redemption in the passage before us, this morning. And the point that he's making again is this, that the new covenant is superior to the old that the Jews practiced in terms of its ability to deal with your inmost spiritual needs, to deal with my soul, not just my behavior. The law, my beloved, in other words, could only address external issues. It could not cleanse the conscience. Now let's see how relevant then the book of Hebrews is. Somebody perhaps has been here through the course of these uh, studies through the book of Hebrews and you've said, Brother Goins, this is an old book <laughs> talking about things that happened many thousands of years ago and it just seems so remote and detached from where we live in the modern technological age. And why is the book of Hebrews even relevant to us today? And here we see the relevance of this ancient epistle. For every heaven-born soul, knows the experience of conviction of sin. That's one of the first evidences of grace, that when the Lord touches your heart, He gives you a sense of your sinful condition. And I would even go a bit further than that, and I'll try to explain what I mean in just a moment. Every human being, because he's created in the image of God, knows what it's like to be haunted by feelings of remorse and failure although he doesn't interpret that in terms of theological guilt against a holy God, yet he knows the psychological effect of remorse, the pain of embarrassment and shame, because God created man in his own image. Now, you say, Brother Mike, what does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Well, it means that we are moral beings as well as physical beings. We're created as physical beings, but we also have a moral component to our makeup. We have an internal barometer for judging right and wrong. Let me define it like this. The conscience is like the central nervous system of the soul. Now, in your body, you have a central nervous system, and those nerves monitor and register and record the condition of the rest of the body. And the soul has a central nervous system, and that is the conscience. The conscience, if I could illustrate it like this, is like a thermometer. It registers and records, but it doesn't actually change the environment, but it registers and records it so that you know what is going on. And I suggest that the conscience, which is given to human beings by the creative act of God as part of their human makeup, begins to function very early on. A small child takes a piece of 
chewing gum from his mother's purse. And then he runs to hide behind the closet door and eats it in secret and stashes the paper where no one will find it. And if, in fact, he's discovered, and perhaps even if he's not, the resultant feelings of shame and embarrassment and perhaps even alienation are very real. And though he may not be able to define those feelings, nonetheless, he feels especially uncomfortable with them. And it shows that conscience is working the way that God made it to function. And then as you and I grow older, conscience continues to stalk us following us and recording our life experiences as to whether we've done right or wrong. And the emotions of conscience are unpleasant enough so that you and I soon learn to try to silence and suppress and short-circuit it if we can. And if we do so long enough, we may one day cauterize the conscience, or as Paul says to Timothy, we may have a seared conscience that doesn't function like it was made to function. Yet with all of man's efforts to find peace in his soul and to escape the pain of conscience, he finds it virtually impossible to get away from what Edgar Allan Poe called the telltale heart. And though no one may know around what has happened, yet his own conscience tattles on him and he feels the pain of that. You know, this is one theme that Shakespeare highlighted time and again in his writings. You may be familiar with the scene of Lady Macbeth washing her hands incessantly. And finally, in desperation, she exclaimed that all the perfumes of Arabia cannot remove the stain left on my hands, and especially so upon my heart. Hamlet is the one I believe that said conscience makes cowards of us all. When there's an opportunity to speak up for a wrong that's been done, yet because I myself have participated in the wrong, we fail to stand to the occasion because conscience makes cowards of us all. You see, my friends, conscience is an important part of you. In fact, I suggest that it is the most crucial part of our spiritual anatomy in our lives right now. Now, perhaps you object to what I've said about everyone having a conscience. You say, preacher, I thought only a child of God had a conscience. And I would say that it is true. Only a child of God has conviction of sin. Only a child of God sees that his failures are an offense against God and is convicted over that. But even the unregenerate man has a conscience. Titus 1.15 says his mind and his conscience is defiled. Now, it's corrupted, it's depraved, it's fallen. Just like the unregenerate man still has a will, just like he still has emotion and rational processes, these are all components of being created in the image of God, he still is a moral being. Here's his problem. The problem with the unregenerate man is not that he's incapable of psychological shame, but he doesn't interpret that shame as sin against the moral law of God. Say so then how does he deal with his shame, his embarrassment, his remorse? He feverishly tries to escape it by various distractions and rationalizations. The internationally acclaimed psychiatrist Dr. Carl Menninger wrote a book in 1973 entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? 
And it was such a shocking title that all of his colleagues were left jaw agape. They were surprised that a secular psychiatrist would talk about a theological subject, whatever became of sin. And in that book, Dr. Menninger predicted that a day would come when sin no longer would be a part of the human conversation. Instead, the idea of moral wrongdoing would be replaced by rationalizations that exclude human accountability. In other words, my sins would be blamed on illness or on dysfunctions or on syndromes or they would be due to some kind of biochemical abnormality or cultural handicap or environmental factor. My beloved, if we externalize our guilt by shifting the blame to something beyond us, beyond our own moral failure, if we distract ourselves by saying it's my parents' fault or it's my culture's fault, I was socially underprivileged, or the school system let me down, or economics have been against me all the way. If we attempt to externalize our own failures and guilt by blame shifting, it will never work to give you peace. It won't work because it fails to address the root cause. It only palliates the symptoms. It never deals with the root of the problem, which is sin against the holy law of God. Now I want now with this lengthy introduction to come to our text, and I want to point out two ways that people try to attempt to resolve the pain of conscience. And then I want to show you God's way, His solution for cleansing the conscience. And we're going to use several C words here. Conceal, and compensate, and confess, and cleanse. The first way that people try to get away from this remorse and sense of failure and the pain of taking the piece of chewing gum from mommy's purse, the first way they try to do that is by concealing their sins. You see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, after taking the forbidden fruit, ran and hid among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to make themselves aprons to try to cover themselves, hide themselves from God. And God's question, you may remember, was, who told thee that thou wast naked? Where did you learn that there is anything to be ashamed of? You see, they had existed without shame, perfect freedom with each other and with God prior to that time, but suddenly all of their relationships are strained and they feel this haunting sense of shame and embarrassment. Conscience has been awakened. And you remember what they did? They engaged in the great cover-up. The great cover-up happened not in the days of the mafia or the mob. The great cover-up happened, my friends, in the Garden of Eden. Proverbs 28.13 says it like this, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall obtain mercy. And my beloved, the biggest problem you have today and that I have is sin. It's not social underprivilege. It's not some economic distress. It's not physical illness or sickness. It's not racial tension. The biggest problem that every human being has, whether he admits it or not, is sin. And the greatest need we have then is not to have our lives improved by some program, but to have our sin dealt with so that we can have peace in the conscience. 
But the first thing that man tends to do when he feels this shame is he tries to conceal it. He wants to deny it, perhaps. And no doubt you will find many people who are willing and ready to come to you and to say, don't worry about it. Everybody makes mistakes. Have you ever heard these lines? Everybody makes mistakes. You're only human. Don't be so hard on yourself. It's not really your fault. This is nothing but false guilt and other efforts to externalize the problem, whether it's up, down, left, or right, to just get it away from personal accountability, to distract from it. Some people not only deny it, but they say the best thing to do when you're dealing with your personal failures is just to, if you can't deny it, just distract yourself from it. But he says, well, I'm just going to pour myself into entertainment, recreation. I'll get, get so busy at work that I won't have to think about the real issues of life. And you know, so many people live like that, don't they? In the fifth chapter of the book of Isaiah, the prophet says, Woe unto them that lay house to house until there's no place to be alone. And one reason people busy their lives with 101 activities and so much stuff is because it keeps them from having to sit and think seriously about what really matters and the failures of the past. And you say, Brother Mike, okay, I understand what you're saying this morning, but it is unpleasant. I don't like to think about that. I'd rather look on the bright side. I'd rather, you know, sing a kuna matata. <laughs> don't worry, be happy. Just put on a smile and cheer up. Put on a happy face. But my beloved, still, you can try that. You can try to run and hide, but can you get away from the hound of heaven that is on your trail? and that is tracking you down, and that is haunting you with this sense that somewhere along the line, I haven't measured up to the kind of person. You see, sin is the biggest problem that we have. Now again, I say that this is not a popular subject today, but it is the most needful subject that you and I would ever consider because it's our biggest problem. The rest of the world says, no, it's an illness again, it's a dysfunction, it's a syndrome, it's something that uh, somebody else has done to you. It's not sin against God. But you know, the child of God whose heart has been tendered by grace knows that he has a need. And my beloved, only the blood of Jesus Christ can meet that need. Only the grace of God can satisfy that need. The law could not do it. Now I'll get ahead of myself if I'm not careful, but so many people will do anything to silence the conscience, conceal. And then secondly, here's another way people deal with it, and this is what our text has reference to when he talks about the law service, the Old Testament order of worship. Compensate. Many people try to deal with their shortcomings and their misgivings and their failures and the remorse that haunts them by making up for this sense of failure and remorse with good works. And that was the essence of the law. If you can do enough good things, somebody says, that will finally give you peace so that you don't have to think about your bad things. In other words, like the lady that told me one time, and she was so sincere, and I tried to gently nudge her away from the position and encourage her with the truth, but she said, uh, I believe that I've done enough good works in my life to outweigh the bad works, so that when I get to heaven, the scales will tip in my favor. My beloved, may I say that just one sin would be enough to condemn the whole lot of us from the presence of God for eternity. The fact is that you can't make up for a wrong done by two rights. 
In fact, a thousand rights will not compensate for the first wrong. But you know, this is what the law was all about. You say, well, if I can just do enough good work, give enough money to charity, help enough elderly people across the street, take groceries to the shut-ins, visit the underprivileged, and feed and clothe the orphans. All of that is very worthwhile. All of that is very honorable. All of that, if done with the right motives, my friend, is honoring to God and very moral. But yet what I'm saying is when it comes to dealing with your biggest problem, it can't make a dent. It can't even make the smallest down payment on your sin debt. Verse 14, in fact, calls these good works that somebody's trying to compensate for their bad works with good works. He calls these good works dead works. Listen to this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works? You see, as far as their ability to resolve the inward tension that you feel, the works that a person does, though they may be good on the surface, yet they're really ineffective. They're dead works. And that's what the law did. Again, I emphasize this morning, my beloved, that the new covenant is superior to the old in terms of its ability to deal with our inmost spiritual problems and most fundamental spiritual needs the cleansing of the conscience. Because concealing our failures does not work. Compensating for our failures does not work. In fact, listen to verse 9 in Hebrews chapter 9. The law service with all of its ceremonies, going through all of these motions, all of these services, was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. All that they did, again, was address the externals. They were ceremonial. They could not get on the inside of you and help your heart and help your soul. Now, I want us to think about God's solution for just a moment. Is there a solution for the pain of conscience? And the answer that the Bible gives us is not conceal it, not try to compensate for it, but to confess it. Again, Proverbs 28, 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall obtain mercy. What a wonderful promise, isn't it? To confess in biblical terms means to say the same thing as God. It means to agree with Him. Instead of denying my sin, like a little child caught, did you take the cookies from the cookie jar? No, Mommy, I didn't. And why are there chocolate chips on your mouth, you know? Instead of denying it, we acknowledge it. We say the same thing. The he that covers his sins shall not prosper. God says that. It won't work. It won't help you. It, you won't get away with it. I won't get away with it. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them. You say, Brother Mike, I'd be afraid to confess it. Well, there may be occasions when you need to confess to others. But he's talking primarily here about confessing it to God. And I want to tell you, you are safer with God because of Jesus Christ than you would be with other people. David once said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for with Him is mercy and compassion, but let me not fall into the hands of men. I feel much more comfortable because I understand the gospel. You see, my conscience is free today. That's what I'm saying. And you say, are you saying that you're perfect, Brother Mike? No, I'm saying I'm forgiven. 
I'm saying, my beloved, that Jesus Christ has paid the ransom price and that I have found peace in the good news, the gospel, the new covenant message that God has said, thy sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's what we just read back in the 8th chapter. Do you remember? He says he'll write his law in your hearts. You see, here's the child of God. Here's the regenerate man. He has a conscience and now he's interpreted his failures in terms of sins against God. He has conviction of sin. He's poor in spirit. He's mourning over his sins. Where does he find help? Where does he find peace? He finds it, my friends, in the good news that Jesus paid it all. All the debt that I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but his blood washed it white as snow. Therefore, when I confess my sins... 1 John 1.9 says He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now maybe you're here this morning and you say, Brother Goins, I'm afraid if I acknowledge my sins to God, if I confess them, if I tell Him what I've done and express my deep regret, remorse, shame, and grief of soul for offending His good providence in my life, I'm afraid that He won't forgive me. Well, this verse says He's faithful to forgive you. And you say, well, on what basis can He forgive me? Is He just going to say, okay, well, we'll just act like that didn't happen. No, He's not only faithful to do it, but He's just in doing so. He keeps the law. You see, God never forgives sin at the expense of His justice. God has never just simply turned a blind eye to sin or even slapped you on the wrist and said, okay, naughty, naughty. Go your way and don't do it again. Justice has to be served. The law has to be upheld. Again, God never extends grace at the expense of justice. But here's the good news of the gospel. Justice has been met for all of God's elect. On the cross of Calvary, when Jesus stood as their substitute, and the judgment that was due to me and to you was poured out upon Him, and because of His perfect merit, God's law has been satisfied His anger and wrath against sin has been appeased. And mercy has then been extended to each one of the objects of His eternal love because of His marvelous grace. Indeed, my friends, that's why we need to confess our sins. The only way to effectively deal with the inward burden of an offending conscience is to address the cause, the root of the problem, which is sin, not just to palliate the symptoms. And in order to do that, we need access to God, don't we? Because the cause is our relationship to God is estranged. But notice verse 8 in our text. The Holy Ghost, this signifying when the high priest alone went into the Holy of Holies, the Holy Ghost signified by that that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. You can't come into the presence of God, and I can't either. Only the high priest could, and he had to come with blood. So we need access to God if we're going to deal. You know, if you want to get help for your malady, you need to see the doctor. (laughs) You know, it's next to impossible to get an appointment these days. (laughs) I mean, uh, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of relatives and friends. They say, yeah, I called, I need to see the doctor, a sick visit today, and they've put me off for six weeks. Had a person just the other day need to see the doctor, and it's uh, six weeks away before an appointment's been scheduled. It's like, you know, I always tell them I'll be dead by then. (laughs) But I'm telling you, my beloved, we've got to get access to God. But you see, because of sin, 
there's restricted access. There's a big sign that says no access. You can't get to God and I can't either in and of ourselves. The children of Israel couldn't. Only the high priest could go in and he could only do it once a year and he had to carry blood with him. And the Holy Ghost signified by all of that that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. You say, what is the restriction? Where I'm restricted from what? What is it that's holding me back? A big curtain? No, not a mere curtain. Not a physical curtain that separates us from God, my beloved. It's our sinful hearts. It's our sinful hearts that separate us from God. Verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood. In contrast to the fact that we have no access, Jesus Christ, our high priest now, has entered in once into the holy place. And that word once in Hebrews, I want you to remember, means once for all. Once forever. He entered in once. That is, he'll never need to do it twice. That the high priest had to go every year. He had to continue to enter. Into, but Jesus, with the sacrifice that is the best of all, the ultimate sacrifice, his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You know, that's good news, isn't it? Jesus was not a failure at the cross. He came to do a work and he left, my beloved, with the job completely finished. He left with the results in hand. When he went back to heaven, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained. It doesn't sound like he came to try to do a work that he failed to do. It sounds like when he went back to glory, he went back a success. A victorious, conquering hero king, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Indeed, the best thing that you and I can do then is to confess our sins. Listen to the psalmist David. You remember when David had sinned with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11? David had, in his idleness, had walked on the rooftop and he'd seen a beautiful woman bathing in an, on an adjacent house. He had summoned for her and she had come at the king's summons and David, in his lack of good judgment and his sinful nature committed a heinous sin. And when he discovered that she was with child, he rushed to begin the great cover-up. And he even plotted to have her husband put in a position. He tried to get him to come home on leave and make it look like uh, David had not violated his trust or the woman's virtue, but Uriah was too good for that, too honorable for that. He slept on the king's porch that night instead of going home. He said, how can I enjoy comforts with my wife and family whenever my fellow soldiers are in the battle? He said, I can't do it. And he wanted to get back to the action. He felt a sense of loyalty to his task. And anyway, David finally, you may remember, plotted and conspired to have Uriah killed. He told Joab to withdraw while the battle is at its hottest point and leave Uriah standing in front of the wall where he could be attacked from the wall. And Uriah, one of David's mighty men, one of his most loyal, trusted soldiers, was killed. So David has not only committed adultery, but he has sanctioned and even planned and overseen the murder of Uriah the Hittite. What a dastardly sin. And I wonder how could he live with himself? And you say, well, he must not have been a child of God. Oh, my friends, David had written many psalms prior to that time. He had shown his loyalty to God in the battle with Goliath in the Valley of Elah. He just lost his focus. And the sword never departed from his house. 
I mean, he suffered for it the rest of his days. But David, for about a year, tried to conceal his conscience. He thought he had covered it up. And finally one day an old preacher named Nathan showed up on the scene. And Nathan said to David, I want to tell you a story, David. He said there was a rich man traveling and he came to one of his friends who had a great crop of livestock. And the friend, when the, his neighbor had come to visit him, instead of taking from one of his sheep or lambs to feed his guest, he went and took a poor man who was his neighbor, took his one little ewe lamb and sacrificed it to feed. Instead of making his own sacrifice, he stole somebody else's. David was livid. His blood pressure rose sky high. And he said, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And Nathan the prophet pointed the long prophetic finger of accusation at David and he said, thou art the man. You have taken a man's one ewe lamb. And David's heart broke. He realized he'd been found out. You know who knew about David's sin? God did. God did. And he couldn't escape the hound of heaven. He couldn't escape the stalking of conscience. And David, when his heart broke, he wrote Psalm 51. And listen to verse 2. Wash me. Now he's praying for cleansing. Wash me. I need a bath. Wash me throughly. That is, inside and out from my sins. Cleanse me from mine iniquities. For I acknowledge my transgressions. That's confession. I acknowledge. And my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now he had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against the nation. But he says ultimately all sin is an act of cosmic treason against God. Because we are made in God's image. And therefore our ultimate business. We have to do business with God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight. And he says, Lord, I've had this problem since I was born. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. And that's the doctrine of total depravity, right? We've all had this problem since we were, were born with a fallen nature. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not excusing it. He's just saying, Lord, I just can't seem to get away from my failures. They're ever with me. But then he prays in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Purge me. Purge the conscience. Purge me. Cleanse me. That's what it means. With hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Here's the good news of the gospel. On the cross, God has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, nailing it to his cross, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Legally and positionally, God has forgiven every one of his people. But you see, in our hearts and consciences, we carry the shame of that as we live in this world. And therefore, we need to go to God on a daily basis, keep short accounts with God, and confess our sins. If you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I just want to read one more passage before we close. Psalm 32, verse 1. Another penitential psalm of David. 
Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Now here, the word blessed means, oh, how very happy. Blessed is he. Now, are most people happy? Uh, no. Most of us, my friend, are uh, living with a lot of excess baggage from past failures. And we don't know what it is, in many respects, to walk in sunlight, to uh, live with a spring in our step. Or like Elder J. A. Monsi said, now I'm singing on my way that Jesus washed my sins away. You know, we live in this cold world, out in the cold world, away from God, no signs of where man's feet have trod. With broken heart, I tried to pray that God would take my sins away. And he talks about how that he couldn't find an answer until he finally gave up. The answer came when I gave up, about to drink the bitter cup, that Jesus died on Calvary's tree to save poor sinners just like me. And now, I'm singing on my way. Many people don't live like that. They don't live with lightheartedness and with joy and gladness and hope and peace and a clear conscience. They're burdened down. But David says, blessed is the man. Oh, how very happy. Whose transgression is forgiven. Do you know a better message than this this morning, my friend? And whose sin is covered. Not covered in, by concealing it. Covered in the blood. Atoned for. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit, that is conscience, there is no guile. When I kept silence, he says, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. That is such graphic language to describe the pain of a, an offended conscience. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture, that is my strength and vitality, is turned into the drought of summer, then he says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee. That's confession. And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sins. For this, for this kind of freedom and peace and blessedness, shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. What I've been trying to say this morning, my beloved, is that only the blood of Jesus can address your and my deepest spiritual needs. And when we understand that the gospel proclaims a finished work, it cleanses, it purges our conscience from dead works so that with freedom and liberty we can go forward to serve the living God. If this gospel message appeals to you today, if it tells your story, if you find peace in the good news of Christ's atoning death, may I say you ought to follow him in gospel obedience and be baptized and you'll get the answer of a good conscience toward God. It will give you peace and you can go on your way rejoicing, singing songs of deliverance to the matchless name of Jesus. As we stand to sing a hymn, we give you that opportunity this morning. In songs of sublime adoration and praise, he pilgrims for Zion to rest. Break forth and extol the great agent of grace, is rich and distinguishing grace. Discovered its place.
And pray.